Um, one of the things I like to do each, each week, I tend to read a little bit about the passage that we're going to be looking at the following Sunday uh, from a few different places. Uh, this week, the very first sentence I read about chapters 33 and 34 uh, was this. Uh, I would say, out of all the passages in Exodus, these chapters are by far the most difficult. So that was, a, that was an encouraging start for my week. It's an encouraging start for our time together. Uh, perhaps as, as we read that, there's some bits which are a bit tricky, uh, some bits which we're kind of trying to get our, our head around. Uh, but what I'd like us to do this morning, and what we've been trying to do all the way through Exodus, is to look at, at the big picture. So it's to see, you know, what's the main point in these chapters? How does it kind of move on? How does it progress, uh, this incredible narrative of the book of Exodus that actually we're coming towards the end of? How does it deepen our, our understanding of the God who is the main character of this whole book? Uh, and I think actually when we do that, when we approach these uh, chapters in that way, uh, things become a lot simpler because really what we have here uh, is quite straightforward. There is a problem, uh, there is a solution, and then we're given the, the result of that solution. That's quite a, a kind of a common pattern that things go through, isn't it? This week we had a, a problem at home, uh, our, sh- our shower drain was blocked uh, the solution involved me kind of blindly poking around with a, a screwdriver and an old chopstick that I found somewhere. And slightly miraculously, the result was uh, it started working again and we're no longer flooding the bathroom. Um, well, the situation here is perhaps slightly more significant, it's fair to say, slightly more grave. Uh, and yet it follows that, that same pattern, a problem, a solution, uh, and then the result of that. So let's uh, dig in and, and have a look at those together. Uh, so first of all, what's the problem? What problem are we faced with here in chapter 33 and 34? Well, to get to grips with this, we need to do a bit of a recap from last week, chapter 32, as these are all tied together. You might remember, if you were here, that that Chris took us through chapter 32, and it was this episode with the golden calf, where Moses is away from the people for a little bit, and the people decide to reject God. Reject the God who'd rescued them, uh, reject the God who'd brought them out of Egypt, the God who'd promised and delivered so much time and time again. They reject that God and instead they make their own God. They make this idol, this calf made out of gold. Uh, After promising their loyalty to God, saying whatever you say we will do, well at the very first opportunity uh, they turn their backs on him. Uh, And Chris mentioned that vivid language of kind of honeymoon unfaithfulness, that that break in the relationship that we see here right at the offset. Uh, And chapter 33 and 34 are following straight on from that uh, momentous event and really looking into the consequences of that. And it begins, you'll see at the start of chapter 33, where God says to Moses, uh, basically go, uh, take the people, go to the land I promised you, uh, I'll drive out all these people before you, it will be your land. Uh, And so despite what has happened, despite Exodus chapter 32, well, God is still going to give them all that he'd said he would. Despite what has happened, it seems like, well, actually, perhaps everything's fine. And so what's the problem? Well, this bombshell lands in verse 3. Go to a land flowing with milk and honey, God says, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that God is no longer going to be with his people in the land. 
The problem is that there is no longer going to be this great relationship between God and the people, which was the whole point of this great rescue out of Egypt. That the whole point of bringing the people into this land. Uh, the week before last, um, we were away as a family uh, at Creef Hydro for, for Julie's mum's 60th birthday. Uh, it's a great place. There's kind of tons of stuff to do for all different ages, all the family. It sounds a bit like a kind of an advert. It's a great, but, um, you know, the girls really uh, enjoyed being there. Uh, but th- Monday just gone, as I was taking Emily to nursery, her, uh, her teacher said to her, what was the best thing about your time away? And Emily looked at her and she said, well, granny was there. You know, it was being with Granny that was better than the pool, better than the kids' club, better than all the other stuff. I, I preferred the pool, but, you know, that's, you know, that's her, her prerogative. You know, that was what was special about the place. And that's the same uh, as the promised land. You know, God has promised to give these people this land as their home. This land is their ultimate destination, and it's kind of described throughout the Bible almost as a, a kind of a paradise, You see that in verse 3, it's this land flowing with milk and honey, this this place of abundance. And yet the best thing about this land is that God was going to be there. The people and God would once again be living together. It's a kind of a return to that perfection at the the beginning in in Genesis 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden. And yet now here's God saying, actually, he, he won't be there. And it's important we see this isn't this that kind of God's in a, in a bit of a huff, or you've done this, so, so I'm not going. The point is, the problem really is that, that he can't be there. That the perfect, holy God can't be among rebellious, sinful people. Or what? They'll, they'll be consumed, it says. They'll be destroyed. It'll be like kind of dropping a, a white hot coal into the middle of kind of dry and dusty straw. And so it's a It's a disaster. It's this problem that threatens to render the whole of Exodus so far, everything we've seen over the last two and a half months, uh, meaningless. And so there's the problem. How can a holy God be among sinful, rebellious people? And one of the things that Chris did such a great job, I thought, last week at, was showing us that the Israelites' rebellion with this golden calf in chapter 32, while that might look to us very different, it might look kind of weird, while we might think, how, how stupid are those people? Well, actually, we saw that it's something that is very much part of our own lives. That each one of us, we, we turn away from God. We make idols not out of uh, golden calves, but out of, of money out of what people think about us, out of our desire to be in control of things. These are where we put our trust. And just the same as the Israelites, we turn away from God. And so our problem is the same as this problem. How can a holy God be among sinful, rebellious people? And we're going to look at the the solution uh, that this passage gives to that in just a moment. But first of all, I just want us, uh, I suppose, to think about that problem, feel the, the challenge of that problem a little bit. Uh, and really, I think the, the challenge for a lot of us is this. Does that problem actually bother us? So I think it's fair to say that the Israelites in the book of Exodus, they don't always come out that positively. They're not always great role models. But here, their, their reaction is spot on. Look at verse 4. They're devastated. They mourn. It's a, a terrible, disastrous word that they're told. You know, they realize the, serious of the, the seriousness of the situation. Even though they've been told, you can still have the stuff, you can still have the land. Well, without God, they're not interested. And I think that's a real kind of challenge. Would that be our response? Do we want the stuff that God gives? 
Well, actually, do we want God himself? Is God a means to an end? Or is God in a relationship with him that the ultimate goal? We just sang earlier that, that great song. It finishes, there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. You know, can we really say, by the way that we act, that that is what we treasure above everything else? Not stuff, not even stuff God gives us, but that Christ is ours. That, that relationship. Now, for all of us here, whether Christianity is something perhaps we're sort of thinking about or whether it's been at your life for a long time, um, we want people to kind of uh, in- remember that, they, that the very heart of it is Christ. So, you know, for an example, I'll tell you a secret, I quite uh, in- enjoy being part of this church. Uh, we've got good friends here. There are people who I know would and, and who have been very supportive and encouraging to us who would uh, help us out. There is kind of community. I enjoy uh, eating before and after the service. All of these kind of good things that come from God. And yet it's this constant reminder for us that actually the main thing has to be God being with his church. If all of that stuff was, was stripped away, would we still say, yeah, this is an encouraging place to be because God meets with his people? And that's something we can't lose sight of. Yeah, whatever stage of that journey uh, we're in, are, are we in kind of the Christianity, into church for, for what it offers us? What can God do for me? Or do we actually, above everything else, want to know God? want to be close to God, want to enjoy relationship with God. Is that our treasure? Is that our number one priority? And yet the problem is, as we've seen, how can a holy God have a relationship with unholy, imperfect people like these Israelites, uh, also like us? Well, as I said, the good news is, as we move on, this passage gives us a solution to that, a solution to to that problem, and, and it's a twofold solution. And so let's move on and, and look at that solution now. And, and the first part of the solution is this. It's, it's Moses' special role as a mediator. And we've spoken about this, I think, before, but here it's emphasized perhaps even more clearly. Uh, those verses you see about the tent of meeting in verses 7 to 11, what are they all about? Well, really they're showing us that God meets with Moses outside of the camp. And then there's this gap to where the people are. God is outside of the camp speaking to Moses in this tent. Moses bridges that gap, coming into the camp to speak to the people. He's bridging that gap. He's that mediator. We see it even more uh, as Moses reasons, almost kind of argues with God on behalf of the people. Have a look at, at verse 14. God says to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Uh, what doesn't really stand out here in the English is that the you here is singular. We were speaking with some guys before the service about the lack of y'all or, or yous in the English language, which can get us in trouble. But here the, the you is singular. God is saying his presence will go with Moses and Moses alone. What's Moses' response? He says that's not enough. He intercedes for the people. Verse 13, consider too that this nation is your people. Verse 16, how shall it be known I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not you going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses is saying, you know, this doesn't work if it's only me. It's the fact that this God is going to be with his people which sets us apart, which makes this whole thing worthwhile. So Moses argues on behalf of the people. He's this mediator. 
And we see there that, that God accepts that. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. Uh, the favor that Moses has with God. This special status that he enjoys that we've seen throughout the book of Exodus. He's not just an, an average person. This special relationship that Moses has with God, he uses so that all the people can be with God. He uses so that God can be with all of his people. So that's the first part of the uh, solution, Moses, the mediator. Uh, and yet the second part of the solution, the way this huge problem can be overcome, is actually uh, God's character itself. And so if we're not careful, we can end up reading this passage a little bit with kind of Moses as the good guy uh, and God as this kind of meanie. And, and Moses has to kind of twist God's arm to force him to be nice. Well, well that is not the case here. That is, that is not what we're supposed to understand. Uh, imagine, perhaps, if you will, uh, you kind of scratch your neighbor's car or you kind of knock off their wing mirror as you're, you're pulling into your driveway and it, it's a bit of a disaster. It's a car they love. It's completely your fault. Uh, you know they're going to be cross. Um, what might you do to kind of smooth over things? Well, you might send around someone, I suppose, to apologize in your place. If you have a member of your family who's particularly smiley or kind of gets on with them particularly well, is slightly cuter than you are, you can kind of tell them to toddle around and try and sort out the problem that way. They'd be acting kind of as a mediator. And yet that's only going to make any difference whatsoever if there is something in your neighbor which is kind. Something about them which is forgiving. Something about them that has kind of generosity uh, in, their, in their character. If they're intent on, on revenge or on making you pay or on punishing you, then there's nothing that mediator can do. Well, the point here, of course, is that, that Moses can't twist God's arm. Moses can only act, can only have this kind of two-way discussion with God because of the kind of God that God is, because of God's character. And that's what's highlighted next. There's a kind of back and forward at the end of chapter 33 and into 34, uh, but it's really all kind of building towards and, and summed up in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 34. This incredible revelation of who God is. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God reveals himself, reveals his character as one who is merciful, as one who's gracious, as one who's slow to anger, as one who shows love, as one who forgives and yet still maintains and upholds justice, will not just forget about sin, but it's because of this character, it's because of this grace which remember we said a couple of weeks ago is, is receiving this love that we don't deserve. It's because of his mercy, which I suppose is kind of the opposite of that. It's not getting the punishment that we do deserve. It's because of his forgiving nature that there is a solution to this problem. God won't leave his people. He'll go not just with Moses, but with all the people, his people, even though, as we read, there are stiff-necked people kind of a great description of these kind of rebellious people who constantly want to go their own way. But because of God's gracious character, because of Moses the mediator, there is a way that he will go with his people. 
And that is the result, isn't it? Verse 10 of chapter 34, we see the, the kind of the covenant, that's the relationship between God and his people is renewed. In fact, we didn't read all the way through chapter 34. If we did, you might have remembered or you might have recognized a lot of parallels to chapter 20 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago before the golden calf. And the kind of the pattern is this in chapter 20 that as the Ten Commandments are given, that relationship is established Chapter 32, that relationship is broken. And yet we're supposed to see the the parallels to chapter 20 in chapter 34 as that relationship is restored once again. The, The problem has been dealt with. There's this solution which wasn't to pretend that sin doesn't matter. But it was, to, it was that, that, that problem, that gap was overcome by God's gracious character and the provision of Moses, this mediator. Well, let's kind of bring this kind of back to us today. We might think, well, that's great, isn't it? I'm glad that that worked out for the Israelites. But, but what about us? I'm, you know, I'm glad all this time looking uh, through the book of Exodus hasn't been a, a waste of time with a sad ending. But actually, uh, what does this mean for us? Well, we said this is our problem too. How can a holy God be with sinful people? Well, what's our solution? I hope kind of by now we're kind of getting used to the, the solution, which is that actually the same solution for the Israelites is the solution for us. Remember that the picture of Exodus is a picture of the gospel. How's God able to dwell with kind of sinful people like us? Well, it's not by sweeping the wrong stuff under the carpet, but he's able to, to offer us that solution because of that same character, which is unchanging throughout the Bible, his gracious, merciful, forgiving character, that he is abounding in in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's able to have a solution to that problem through the ultimate mediator, not Moses, but Jesus Christ. And we see the parallel so clearly, don't we? Just as Moses used that favor he had with God to make a way for God to be with his people, Well, Jesus, all the more, uses that perfect relationship that he has with God, being God himself, uh, not for his own benefit, but again, to make a way for God to be with his people. How does he do that? Well, I wonder if you notice uh, perhaps a kind of tension, we might say, in in God's description of himself uh, that we just read in chapter 34. Let me read again, verse 7. He, he forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but he will by no means clear the guilty. Uh, so we have this picture. He, he's forgiving, and yet still he is just, and that he will punish sin with the punishment it deserves. He's loving and merciful, and yet he takes sin seriously. And this tension of forgiveness and sin runs kind of throughout the, the Old testament that the part of the bible written before jesus it's at the heart of that problem that we began with how can a holy god be with sinful people and it says jesus arrives that this tension is resolved it says jesus comes that we see actually god does punish sin we see wickedness does get dealt with judgment does fall and yet incredibly it falls on Jesus. The only perfect person ever, the only human ever who didn't deserve this punishment. And yet on the cross, he takes the consequences of our sin, of our rebellion. He pays the price. He takes the punishment. And because of that, this forgiveness 
it is possible. It's not that sin has been forgotten or kind of brushed under the carpet. It's that sin has been dealt with once and for all by Jesus. And the result of that for us is the same again as the result for the Israelites. A covenant relationship with God based on these covenant promises that he's made that that show us his gracious uh, character. These promises he's made that he has kept at the greatest possible cost through Jesus, the perfect mediator of a new and of a better covenant. There is a solution that because of Jesus, God can be with us. We can have that great relationship. In fact, an even closer relationship with God because of the greater kind of mediatorial work of Jesus than the Israelites could ever enjoy. And I just want to finish this morning by uh, thinking about one thing uh, in particular. One of the things that uh, I love about Exodus, one of the things that's been so great to go through the book of Exodus, is that it gives us this kind of huge sort of bird's eye view, I suppose, of the gospel. This huge picture of God acting out his salvation on on a kind of a grand scheme. And we see that picture of how God rescues his people. How he rescues through a lamb who dies in their place how God leads his people, how God is able to to dwell with his people because of this mediator who connects them. We see all of those truths which were true for the Israelites in Exodus and are equally true for us today. Exodus gives us the big picture about what Jesus has achieved. And it's so important that we have that. But I know for me, there's often a temptation to kind of leave these big truths kind of up here slightly uh, without actually kind of taking them uh, into my own personal life. And so I want to, I suppose, finish by kind of landing these in our day-to-day lives and seeing what difference does this actually make. And I think for me that the key thing is this, it's when we think this week of Jesus, God himself, that the perfect mediator taking the cost of our sin, when we think about all that God has done to overcome this incredible problem of how a holy God could be with people like us, when we think of that great price that he has paid, does that not help us treasure that relationship all the more? Is it not remembering that? Is it not remembering these big kind of mile-high truths that move us just from wanting kind of the stuff that God can give us to actually wanting that day-to-day relationship with God himself? With the God who has gone to incredible lengths to make this relationship possible? And if that, is the, if that is the case, well, in, in some ways, the, the number one thing that we could do this week is an incredibly kind of uh, average, day-to-day, uh, standard church advice, nitty-gritty kind of thing, which is to, to dust off our Bibles and, and to read them. You know, to hear from God as he speaks to us through his word. If you're here this morning and you don't own a Bible, you're, you're welcome to take one of these blue ones home with you and kind of dig into that to see what God says. If we actually treasure this relationship with God above everything else, will we not set time aside in in prayer to speak to God, to tell God what is on our mind, to tell him what we're going through, to bring him in to our day-to-day lives? Uh, These chapters, the book of Exodus, shows us this great relationship. Uh, But like all relationships, it's a relationship which is developed, which grows uh, little by little uh, in the small things uh, day by day. Uh, those decisions that we make to, to spend time with one another. Now, I know that, that carving out that time to uh, read the Bible, to pray, is, is really difficult. There are hundreds of things that kind of press in on our lives and, and take priority over that. 
And yet if we, when we think about what Jesus has done, we recognize that relationship is the greatest prize we could ever have. Uh, how much more will we then kind of commit uh, and prioritize uh, strengthening and deepening and, and learning to enjoy more and more that relationship? And that was what uh, the people knew that the promised land was all about. It was about being with God. That is what, as a church, uh, we want to be all about, a place where people can meet uh, with the God who created all things. And it's something that God wants us to enjoy uh, in each of our lives, day by day, not as a a a once-a-week thing, but as a way of life where where we're able to, to listen to God as he speaks to us through his word, where we're able to speak to God as we come to him in prayer where we're able to enjoy this this great relationship because God himself has dealt with the problem. He is able to be with people like us because of his grace, because of his mercy, because of that mediator, Jesus Christ.